Welcome back. It's swing past the final weekend of the 2022 AUDL regular season is upon us. We've got a 12-game slate, but with so much of the playoffs already decided, this week 14 preview episode will be a little bit shortened as far as our actual game preview segment goes. But in the back half of this episode, we will be getting into some season-end topic discussion, most surprising, most disappointing, best throwers, just kind of giving like a team-by-team breakdown of the 14-week gauntlet we just got through for this season. Daniel, what are you feeling going into this final weekend of games and kind of prepping for the postseason? Man, it it has been a ride. It's you know, every single season always feels like it flies by, but it is still hard to believe that we are in in week 14, right at the end of the year now. It's also weird because we've known so much of the playoffs for a couple of weeks now. So I'm just like, like every week that happens and it's not playoffs yet, it's just building, building more and more anticipation. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to finally get there, but I'm also excited to finally have these last couple playoff spots set in stone. Yeah, I think it's been a weird slow burn because I think for as tepid as some of this end of the regular season schedule has been, it's been setting up more tension for these potential playoff matchups. Now, nine of the 11 teams have clinched a playoff spot. The two remaining spots are the second seed in the South and the third seed in the Central. Both games and both spots, or I should say both spots could be decided tomorrow night on Friday as... Both Madison and Austin will be active. Madison hosting Chicago and Austin hosting Tampa Bay. If Madison loses their game against Chicago, Indy will automatically qualify, I believe. And then if Austin wins their game against Tampa Bay, they will also clinch a playoff spot the second time in franchise history for the soul should they clinch a playoff spot and one of the bigger i think season-long upsets you could say of what we expected going into this year with the atlanta hustle and the amount of talent that they had accrued during the offseason and the seeming way that talent would fit on its roster obviously hustle still sitting at seven and four and hosting indianapolis this weekend but They're on the outside looking in. They don't control their playoff destiny, and they need a one-win Cannons team to win on the road in their first game of a Texas doubleheader in order to stay alive this season. So we will be previewing the Friday feature of Chicago at Madison, Tampa Bay at Austin, which also takes place on Friday, as well as the Indianapolis at Atlanta game, which will take place on Saturday. All three of those games will be available on watch.audl.tv. There is an FS2 AUDL game of the week this this week, Portland at Colorado, but we have decided not to preview that one this week. It is a matchup that is only meaningful for Colorado's point differential total heading into the playoffs. Other than that, the West has already been settled with Colorado taking the first seed. Salt Lake taking the second seed, and San Diego locking up the third seed this past weekend. Daniel, we should start in the Central. Let's do it. Yeah, Chicago-Madison, round two. And the first game was 
like weirdly close. I felt like, I mean, I, I always think of Chicago as a pretty significantly more talented team than Madison, but Madison does tend to find a way to just create a little bit more chaos for Chicago offensively and just hang around in games, despite what their rosters look like from year to year. Yeah, I think Madison always has a very high game plan, uh, like effort in every single Chicago matchup. It feels like not only do they understand the union as an opponent, they put in a lot of legwork every single time they match up with the Chicago Chicago team going back historically. I mean, even in the inaugural season for the Radicals, winning against Chicago was a pillar for this team's success. And you could even see that in 2021 when they got that midseason win at home against the Union and it kind of flipped around their season and the hopes that we had for this Radicals team. And I think that there's a similar opportunity tomorrow night at Bree Stevens Field, but these teams are kind of going in opposite directions. Now, Chicago will mm-hmm. be without some of its top playmakers especially over the past few weeks in Eli Artemake is still out with an injury. Kyle Rutledge will be out. Tim Schock is out. Uh, Paul Arters, Dalton Smith, and Joe White will all be out for this game. John Jones is only listed as dressed, even though he has been such a difference maker getting blocks for the Union defense. So it is a little bit more of a vulnerable, I would say, Chicago roster. But Madison mm-hmm. will also be experiencing a couple of notable absences in Victor Luo, Jack Kelly, and Kelson Alexander. Um, so it figures to be kind of more of a defensive tilt, I would think, which would favor the Radicals in sort of an even environment. But given the individual playmaking on Chicago's offense right now with Pavel Giannis, Ross Barker, and Jeff Weiss all playing like the stars that they are in recent weeks... I just worry a little bit about how much Madison can, how much Madison's game planning and maybe defensive depth can ultimately affect three players who are looking pretty impervious to anything other than just having the talent to match up with them. You know, like Jeff Weiss has been just short of dominant of late, if not actually dominant. Uh, Pavel Giannis has been coming on in recent weeks. He started off with that weird eight turnover game in the the elements. I think it was eight uh, to start <laughs> off like the that. season. And then the the Minis- at Minnesota game, which Chicago won, and he played well in in half-field sets. Still had a handful of tur- turnovers. So I feel like some of his stats took a ding at the beginning of the season. But over the last month, he's just been, uh, you know, playing at the level I think we expect of him. He's now second all-time in assists. Uh, he's third all time in hockey assists. He he just surpassed Keenan Plue for most regular season assists all time too. Um, he's he's kind of altered his role I think a little bit more this season. It feels like Chicago is engaging their deep game more than ever, and kind of mm-hmm. counterintuitively, Pavel is almost the least active part of that. He still gets his in the hucking game to be sure, but feels much more like a team-wide effort and that they're so much more willing to engage shots from that midfield set, particularly now when Barker and Weiss have that disc. They are uber confident in their continuation looks from their kind of upfield striker play. 
Yeah, I, I mean, Pavel is definitely still throwing more than he did last year. Like, that has very much been yeah. sort of a system-wide uh, reconfiguration from last year's team to this year's team. But, yeah, a lot, right, a lot of those shots are coming from those midfield guys. And, I, you know, Paul Arters wasn't active. I don't think in that first game they played against he wasn't Madison. It, it didn't seem to matter. I mean, they played, I think it was their most efficient offensive game of the season, which was surprising considering how Madison, like the way they usually keep those games close is because they're able to throw Chicago off rhythm, but Chicago was just clicking the whole time, but still only managed a one goal win. A lot of that was due to their, their pretty low D-line conversion rate. They only were 3 of 13 on break chances. So Chicago had opportunities to sort of expand their lead and just weren't able to do it. But yeah, this offense, I, I feel like we've seen it the entire year, you know, when they haven't had Art Makas, haven't had Arters. It doesn't seem to matter too much as long as they have like a chunk of their core. And we were talking about it before we started recording, like looking at their lineup, this is maybe the first week where I couldn't tell you which seven, like they don't have seven guys that have played significant O-line minutes this year. They have five like core O-line guys. And then Cal Tornabene has also played a couple games slotting in uh, on the O-line from D-line. But I'm also just wondering like kind of out loud, like does it really matter if they still have that core of Pavel, Kaminsky, Jeff Weiss, Ross Barker, and who am I missing? Jack Shanahan is the fifth one. Uh, you know, like those are all, it's it's like that Shanahan, Barker, Weiss core of those continuation throwers coupled with that backfield tandem of Pavel and Kaminsky. It's, it's just a tough system to stop. And I guess Madison didn't really show much ability to do that in the first meeting. I do wonder because, again, this is kind of the first time this season where Chicago isn't dealing with their full lineup of starters on offense. They've always been able, I think, to field kind of a full seven so far this year as far as people who they need on offense to start. And this feels like maybe the first time they don't have that. And I wonder if Madison's young defensive depth can use that as sort of an entry point to find any kind of leverage in this game. Like I, I do think given the way that Madison's defense has been playing over the past couple of weeks, there is opportunity for, again, them to kind of take the blueprint that they used against Chicago last season in 2021 when they got that win and sort of make it uh, a less connected Chicago offense so they can't mm-hmm. kind of play with, you know, four to five players all in rhythm, but maybe it's just two to three really consolidating it down to you need to work it through these two to three players to make it any kind of efficiency on offense. Um, Yeah. Well, and Pavel's got to be like their primary target of guys to shut down in that offense and potentially the rest of it can crumble in a way, which they haven't really been able to do. But again, back to that win that they had last year, that was one of Pavel's worst games of his career, like, like least active games. I think he only had a couple scores. Um, it's not like he was throwing the disc away at the time. They were just sort of denying him the disc and made it flow through other guys, which is not, not the ideal form of the Chicago offense, even though like we've been saying, it's, it is a lot of those continuation looks, but facilitating everything and just initiating that 
that initial offensive flow is always Giannis as the center handler. Well, and what I think Madison did really well in that matchup with Giannis was throw a couple different defenders so he couldn't really understand and get into a rhythm against any single defender. Because I think one of the things that Pavel has shown an ability for throughout his career is to adapt to the matchup that's given to him. And the more, I think, reps you give him against any defender, the more he's going to figure out things he can do against them. And I think sometimes the best Mm -hmm. way to play him is sort of stunting in him how many chances he gets to sort of lab and create against a given defender because I think so many times this year we've seen him sort of maybe start a little slowly in this offense you know he'll take the centering pass he'll distribute and then like as the game picks up he becomes more and more of an active sort of motion passer he's darting up line he's scoring in the red zone he's getting all the goals he's getting this year and I feel like the more opportunities you give him to figure some stuff out the more successful he is. And so you got to kind of give him one look and then take it away and then give him something else to think about and then maybe give him the first look again or faint it and then give him a third look, you know, like I feel like that's what the Radicals did really well because they, I think, played KPS on him and then maybe Nico Ranamad a little bit and then maybe even uh, running some double teams and things at him, just giving him a lot of stuff to think about. And I do think... Madison has enough defenders where they might be able to do that a little bit against Chicago. I just worry about, again, their ability to match up in single coverage if Chicago just says, fine, we're just going to test you downfield with uh, Jeff Weiss and Ross Barker. You know, I I think Barker has traditionally fared very well against his former team, especially in single coverage. And especially with the way that Weiss is playing this year, they're just so potent as a downfield one too and then it kind of then opens it up to Shanahan can eat in the midfield he can become more of a thrower if they need and whoever else they kind of rotate in on offense can also you know I I wonder if maybe Jason Valley switches over for this game I know he's been so good in leading their defensive counterattack, but I wonder if they just kind of let him take over a little bit of like an Artemakis playmaker role because He's been running really well in space in the counterattack for Chicago's D-line. He has. I mean, he's he's typically operating more towards the backfield, but he he does, you know, somewhat compare to what Kyle Rutledge brought to the offense, which I think might be like the most significant loss when I'm just looking at this lineup cuz yeah, Rutledge is like he's like sort of a in-between Pavel and Ross where like he will he will get downfield occasionally. He's not like the team's top receiver, but does a really good job of picking his spots, but generally is just kind of a balancing piece in the backfield. And I just feel like the way he's slotted in and, and can work alongside Ross Barker and Pavel Giannis, like his his role just seems pretty irreplaceable uh, at this point. But I, yeah, I mean, Valley, I think, brings a similar skill set. It'd be... I like him as a defender too. I like Valley as a defender. I feel like he's he's made a good amount of plays, like taking some top matchups throughout the year. And so it, it's hard, you know, knowing that you might lose some of that. But this is a Madison team that it's it's coming in with like a relatively unproven O-line. You know, the Victor Luo absence is going to be huge. It's going to be in a lot more Henry Goldenberg and Kai DiLorenzo, which are, you know, two guys that have shown a lot of, talent but not so much consistency and so yeah maybe chicago can afford 
to move uh, one of their more top defenders to the offensive side. I mean, Nate Goff is also active for the first time in a while tomorrow night. Uh, you know, generally he's been defensive captain, so I don't really expect him to switch over to offense. He also has like a typically a slightly looser play style, but you never know. I mean, it's it's never not appealing to to just say Goff go downfield and and catch hucks from Weiss, from Barker, from Shanahan. I just think you want Goff and his ability to disrupt against a Madison uh, offense that's going to give him a lot of opportunities to, you know, yeah, like I, I just I think, think so you got to let the big guy eat. Like he's he hasn't played in a couple weeks. I, I expect him to have a big impact on this game for Chicago. And I agree. I'm, I'm interested to see if Madison's offense can almost get something out of addition through subtraction. If, having a couple of big time absences in Luo and Kelly from their offensive lineup, if that can somehow simplify some of the things that they're doing, because it just feels like at the end of the day, so much of the struggles of this radicals offense comes down to mental and how they sort of execute drive in drive out. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like they're necessarily lacking for anything. It's just, you know, getting caught in the midfield, getting caught kind of playing pitch and catch, but on five yard flat routes. And, you know, maybe, maybe just removing Luo and their over-reliance at times on him. You know, I think up through their last game, he was leading the team in virtually every offensive category. If they remove that a little bit, maybe they get back to, okay, we really need to balance our attack. Vic isn't here. We have to kind of you know, spread the disc out a little bit more. I, you know, like that's, that's about the only direction I think that the radicals can go in order for them to have a chance in this game against the Chicago team. That's frankly going to be putting up quite a bit of a front as far as their scoring potential, even against the Madison defense is playing well, looks like a top six unit again in 2022. Chicago's offensive explosiveness this season, I think has been the defining element of their team. And it, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit worried about a, a Radicals team that kind of got shell-shocked at home in their last matchup against Indy. Yeah, I, I'm looking back at, at the last game against Chicago, and Vic actually had the most yards of his entire career with over 750 in that game with five assists and three goals. But he also had five throwaways. So, yeah, maybe there is something to simplifying the offense a bit more, you know, having the whole unit regroup and potentially they can limit some of those turnovers because Vic is like he is throwing the disc away more this year than he was last year even though he's still like that centerpiece of the offense so I don't know I think it'll just be interesting regardless uh, of the outcome of this game just what this radicals offense looks like with this particular unit and I don't know it's all just like a you're all just like learning more about these players that the radicals have and like the talent that can develop there. So I'm almost viewing it as like a, like what does the future of the radicals look like? Like this just might be a good test for them. Also KPS, I I'm shocked to see him in the, the active roster. Is he not, did he not like dislocate his shoulder or something? He posted a picture on Instagram, I believe of his arm in a sling. I think um, he's all good. I guess, I think he also got I the guess he's healthy enough. I think the x-ray yeah. was negative, I think is the terminology you would use. There was no sign of any kind of real 
uh, tear or anything. So he's active and good to go. And I think, you know, as good as KPS has been for this defense, he's been sort of flipped back and forth between offensive and defensive roles. And in that kind of, you know, quasi absence, the emergence of Luke Marks and Matt Tucker as two of the top defenders on this team, I think has been really important. And I'm interested to see Mm -hmm. how they fare in this game because it figures that Tucker might get the Weiss matchup. Marks has taken the Barker matchup in the past, not always had the most success, but he does look to be playing at his best level in 2022. So maybe getting a more disruptive matchup with Barker. I'm interested to see those kind of matchups. I, I anticipate that's what will happen there. I could also see, you know, Madison playing Chase Marty, Eric Blaze, and Weiss a bit. Weiss figures to be something that they'll be having to solve throughout the game. And I he's kind of yes. he has that sort of uh that four-quarter football feel where as the game progresses, he kind of just becomes more and more potent because he continues to range around. He seemingly has more endurance than he ever has before, and he can just continue to get those huge gainers as both a thrower and a receiver that really, I think, have put Chicago in a driver's position a lot of times late in games. He's kind of like a supercharged Jack Shanahan. Like I feel like Jack Shanahan has sort of shown the same flashes over the past several years, but Weiss is just like truly dominant downfield as the top receiving option who also has these big throws. He had three assists and only one goal in the last game against Madison, which is surprising to me. I don't know if he's been held to one goal in any game besides that this season, but still was a perfect 26 of 26 on his throws. I'm sure he completed a couple hucks. Oh, he had that game winner to Ross, right? Wasn't that Weiss that threw it? Yep. Yeah, it was on the blown coverage. They kind of didn't pick up Barker nor Weiss, and they both yeah. found each other. Um, it does <laughs> It does kind of seem to me, the more I look at these lineups, like a very good opportunity for Madison to run their zone because Pavel oh, without yeah. Rutledge and with maybe just Kaminsky as a common backfield target with him, there might be opportunity to create some disruption and at least stunt some of these continuation looks that have been so potent for the Union offense. Yeah, I know. I definitely think so. I mean, Chicago is definitely, I would say this is probably their most shorthanded lineup of throwers offensively that they've had all season. So yeah, I think anything the Radicals can do to just put the disc in the hands of guys not named Pavlianis, I think that'll be a win for them. Or even just kind of overload on Pavel, you know, make Pavel do everything without having that balance of Rutledge. Like we've said continually this year, Rutledge has been arguably the best. I mean, I don't even think it's arguable anymore. He's been the best quote unquote complimentary piece that Pavel's had in his five-year career for this team, you know? And I think this is the game where you really kind of, test that you say like hey can you kind of do what you used to do and just take the entire load yourself can you do that against this defense for four quarters who's going to be playing at home in a playoff environment with all of the stakes in the world you know I think you got to kind of almost challenge them on the the field of how much do you guys want this because for Chicago they already have the one seed locked up this is uh, a rivalry game and I think also to kind of keep Madison out of the playoffs. I do think that there is 
in the back of both Chicago and Minnesota's minds, the idea that we don't want Madison necessarily in one game scenarios. I still think there is that kind of prevailing belief as good as Indy's been this season. I just think something about like the Madison defense and its ability to show up just gives teams a little bit more of a pause, even though Indy's defensive counterattack has been historically great this year. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean there is there is still the the point differential thing for Chicago. I mean they they do sort of need to extend that as much as possible. Like all like we talked about in the recap episode, you know, these teams, Carolina, Colorado, Chicago, they could all go 11 and 1 and if they were all to make championship weekend, they they would be seeded based on their plus, you know, plus minus point differential. Uh, this season in Chicago right now is at plus 42 Colorado is at plus 47 Colorado has one game left Chicago has two games left one of Chicago's games is against Detroit but I you know I do think they're aware of the situation and the fact that no one wants to play New York assuming that New York does go to championship weekend but uh, shifting gears slightly or, or to wrap up this conversation DraftKings lines are back this week Oh the yeah, line, the line is Chicago by three and a half. How do you feel about it? Not with these lineups. I think full strength Chicago. Yeah, I would take Chicago and the points there. But yeah, uh, I I think I, I I think I agree. I, I it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise like it's right, really not say, that sorry, strong Chicago of a Madison cover, lineup but either. I'll, I'll take Madison and the points in this. Yeah, but they've got enough defenders. Jack Nelson has actually been playing pretty well for them too. Like, I just think given that it's not Chicago's full strength offense where they can just throw seven out there and, and give you matchup nightmares kind of across the board, I think that Madison will be able to kind of constrict things a little bit. Because what's the over under? 42 and a half points total? Forty-two. Yeah, I, I like the I like the under on that. Like I I think I it'll too. be a slightly lower scoring game. I know the last game was what twenty-two to twenty-one. I it, yeah, I think it was twenty-two twenty-one. So forty-three total points. But that was that was like with Chicago's offense operating at basically their max level of efficiency. So I mean, it is also notable that like they were three of thirteen breaks in that game. They're missing like their key three D-line quarterbacks in Shock, Dalton Smith, and Joe White this week. So they might struggle again to convert breaks. So I would not at all be surprised if this was a slightly lower scoring game just because I, I like I just don't know if I trust either team's D-line to really punch in breaks consistently. So I, I'm with you. I think I'll take the radicals and the points. I, I think the uh, it's hard because looking at the Madison lineup, it's really not that great either. I just, yeah, I just am sort of doubting the, or questioning the efficiency level that Chicago can play at, especially with Madison, you know, seemingly having this, you know, must win uh, energy about this game more so than Chicago. I still think uh, I would take Chicago to win. Like, I I think it's going to be like 19 to 16 Chicago. That's kind of what's in my gut right now. Yeah. I could see a, a two goal, I, but I I would be surprised if Madison won. Yeah, I I don't know if I would be surprised, and I mean they'd still have to wait out Indy winning, but we can get that 
to that in a second or should we transition to that game how about we how about we set up that game before we talk about tampa bay austin even though indy atlanta happens on saturday and could be completely meaningless by the time it does happen indy needs to win in order to prevent madison from having a shot in the playoffs but indy will be facing a pretty strong hustle lineup at home uh Hustle will be without a few notable players in Michael Fairley, John Stubbs, uh, Khalif Al-Salam. But other than that, I mean, they have virtually the same roster that just put up 27 at home against Dallas and won by a seven-goal margin this past week and looks to be one of the more potent offenses in the league and I think could give a lot of matchup problems for an Alley Cats roster that will be without some pretty notable defenders in nick hutton xavier Payne, uh yeah i i i think that if madison can win on friday they have a pretty good shot at getting in through the back door and qualifying for the central division playoffs did you mention matsuka too is out matsuka is out as well for indy yeah i yeah, I'm a little worried about this this record-setting D-line offense that we've witnessed from Indy. I mean, they've got they've got their their core offensive guys in there, but not having Matsuka, Nick Hutton's still out, Xavier Payne is out. I just I mean, the last time that they were missing both Matsuka and Xavier Payne on the D-line, it was when they moved Matsuka over to offense for that one game against Minnesota in Minnesota. And they only convert one break of, of seven opportunities in that game. So I I think that's that that's like what could potentially keep them in this game is that D-line offense. But I, I think of the Atlanta offense as just I, I don't know. I just think they'll it's been I, really I don't good. trust Indy to, yeah, I don't trust Indy to keep pace. Like I don't think they can just like trade scores with this Atlanta offense. Cause yeah, there's just so much talent on it and when they are at full strength they are like a top you know top five maybe top at least top 10 maybe top five offense in the entire league so i i just think they are at a slightly different level than indy right now so this is going to be a tough road battle for sure atlanta coming off of just surrendering 10 total turnovers at home too they're really clicking right now late in the season And it's remarkable how thin of a margin it is between them kind of almost coasting into the playoffs here and them now needing Austin to lose to Tampa Bay on Friday night at home. And I guess we can kind of now sublimate in the Austin game. Austin will be with most of its expected starting lineup. However, both Mark Evans and Evan Swiatek are only listed as dressed for this game. So they're they're kind of like a, a doubtful almost, I would say, to start in this yeah. matchup at home against Tampa. But I do think that Austin will have enough of its talent to survive at home, especially given the way that Tampa has been playing, even coming off of their first win of the season. Seoul just, I think, have enough sort of institutional talent at this point and enough of a belief at home that they can win there and and a d-line counterattack that i think is still going to be really potent and have plenty of opportunities to punch in breaks that i still really like the soul at home so yeah 
I mean, Tampa yeah. is the worst offense in the league at this point, from an efficiency they're, standpoint. Well, and they're one of the worst scoring offenses in league history, too. The 15 point oh, whatever points per game mark yeah. is like bottom four all time. And granted, yeah. that that's now in the newer era with the clock rules that have shortened uh, game time a bunch sure, and constricted sure. scoring a bit. So it's kind of only since the beginning of the 2019 season that we have accurate data that could really place them in a larger context. But historically, they I think they would finish, yeah, like bottom four, bottom five for a single season all time in scoring. Uh, they have they still have yet to score 20 goals in a game this year. They're the only team in the league to do that. So their defense has been playing well of late. Uh, Marco Michael Arbutin has been playing good for them. Uh, Logan Deal has been a good defensive playmaker for them, but there's just not much of a spark. And against, again, a, a sole counterattack that will have most of its uh, throwers available and just, I think, be able to create enough defensive pressure to get some good break opportunities that I think Austin will be able to sustain any kind of potential offensive inconsistencies that they might have without potentially a few of their starters yeah no i think so too i mean yeah the solar converting 52.5 percent of their d-line possessions this season that is good for the fifth best in the league and yeah as i mentioned before tampa is currently the the least efficient offense in the league this season lower than dallas lower than detroit they are only converting on just over 40 percent of their offensive possessions so the majority of the time, they will be giving the sole defense a chance to punch in a break, which, yeah, it's it's tough to win games like that. But, you know, to their credit, they did play Dallas pretty well last week. They only had, what was it, 20 turnovers in the game? I, I imagine that was their lowest mark of the season. So, you know, I think they, they'd probably love... Well, I don't know. Would they love to like be the team that that crushed Austin's dreams and only to let Atlanta into the playoffs? You know, historically, Atlanta and Tampa are the teams that typically have like paired up in the South. Like most of their games have been against each other. So I I don't know for sure if Tampa would love to be the team that ruins Austin's playoff dreams. But you know, I I think there would be something to this Tampa team pulling off the upset. I. I don't see it happening. Neither does DraftKings. I was going to say, I was going to end this talk with both the line and the over-under, <laughs> given what they gave the yeah. line at. So the line is negative, or uh, Austin getting eight and a half at home. Uh, yeah. And the over-under is 39 and a half points, which means that DraftKings basically thinks this is going to be a 24 to 15 game. More yes <laughs> yeah in favor I don't know. I, so yeah yeah what do you think you don't like I, that, that I kind of tend margin? to agree I agree I, yeah, I think that Austin, right. Austin can be pretty tidy in converting break opportunities and cannons give about as many as any team almost ever uh, I think that cannons defensively might be able to make some plays against Austin but again, sort of similar to Madison, I maybe expect Austin to simplify a little bit around Jake Radak, Paul Starkle, Kyle Henke, Vinay Valsaraj, and that might not be the worst thing for them. Maybe Eric Broadbeck shifts over and plays kind of the Swiatek role. 
I generally mm-hmm. think Austin will be fine. And I think as they've shown this year, they're ready to close the book. They're ready to punch their ticket for the postseason. Like they've been angling for this, you know, for two years essentially. Like they expected to make the playoffs last year. They came up just shy in that week 10 loss to Dallas as a, that was effectively a playing game for the playoffs. They beat Atlanta at home despite a fourth quarter comeback uh, the other week, just the other week. And it just feels like the soul are kind of at that point where they want to make themselves synonymous with the narrative that they've been crafting all along, that they deserve to be here, that they're a playoff team. And not only that, that they're challenging for championship weekend. And I kind of think this is their opportunity to, make an impressive showing of it. And I don't, I don't know. I have faith in them at this point and we'll probably get to it when we get to the segment after this sort of preview part of the episode today. But, you know, they've been one of the most surprising teams in the league this year, not because we didn't think that they were talented, but because they've sort of fulfilled on all the wild sort of trajectory that we thought that they had going into the season. Like we, we talked about so many times they had the toughest schedule ever. And now we'll, we'll again get to that in a minute that that's sort of been shifted around a bit with Tampa Bay and Dallas, both being a little bit worse than maybe we anticipated this season, but it takes nothing away from Austin now sitting at eight wins and potentially almost probably a ninth, you know, and, and finishing nine and three in the South. So, do you take them to win by more than eight and a half points? <sighs> That's I think the I line. take eight and a half. I think I'll I, I think I'll actually take the cannons and the points. Oh, and say after all the eight, eight, I think Austin will <laughs> win by like eight. Eight I points. Could see, I could see like twenty four to sixteen. That that or twenty three to six, seventeen, something like that. I'm I'm gonna take Austin to win by more than eight and a half. Not not just to disagree with you, but because I really I really want them to end their regular season on that note. With like with all of the I mean, there's not really so much questioning of this game and like yes, technically Atlanta's still in the playoff race, but we all fully expect Austin to win. But just like putting any any hopes that Atlanta might still have to rest, like early in the first quarter, just getting off to a big lead and then maintaining it and growing it throughout the game. I just think that would be a really cool way for Austin to close out their season. But, you know, not having Mark Evans and Evans Wyatek, if that is in fact the case, that that might, you know, cause a few wrinkles to their offense for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I expect Austin to, again, finish in impressive fashion. I just think that a nine-goal gap hasn't happened a whole bunch <laughs> it's a big, of season. It's a big margin. Particularly yeah. well, the Soul, in... And the Soul haven't done it that much. I mean, they right. against Dallas, I think they maybe had a nine or ten-goal win. Yeah, they had one nine-goal win against Dallas. Okay. But. So that's, that's something. And unfortunately, there is no line for the Indian-Atlanta game for some reason. I know. Tragically, I would out. love to see that line. I know. Where would you that would set be an it? interesting one. I, I think I would put Atlanta it at by like three and a half, four and a half. I think I'd give four and Atlanta half. four and a half. And I, mean, I think I'd some... take. I think I'd take them to cover in that too. 
I, yeah. I really like the potential for this Atlanta offense. You know, they've got Bobby Lay, Austin Taylor, Carl Wurzel, Matt Smith, uh, potentially Jeremy Langdon, Max Thorne, Elijah Jaime. Although Jaime has been spelling a little bit on defense as they work in Max Thorne at times. But it's mm-hmm. kind of like who, whichever combo of Thorne, Jaime, and Matt Smith, any two of those three together they just operate so efficiently and kind of clean everything up where everything else just connects around them. And I don't really worry about how or who is doing the damage. Yeah, I know what you mean. I I also just think with this particular indie roster, missing the guys that are the reason for all of their D-line efficiency success this season, the fact that like that has been very much their defining you know, facet of their game this year. I I just don't, like I said before, I don't think they can really keep pace with this hustle team. So what would you take in Four the theoretical is the line? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe I would lean Atlanta. I feel like four goals, though. I think they'll win by four. So give me the yeah. under. I will take, sorry, not the under. Sorry, Mike Denardis. Uh, I will take Indy and the points because I think it's going to be a four-goal margin. But I also wouldn't be so surprised if it were like a, I don't know, seven or eight-goal win for Atlanta. Indy outdoors against this Atlanta zone? All right. All right. <laughs> I know. All we'll right. See. We'll see. You are pretty down on them outdoors last week, but I guess they acquitted themselves pretty well against Minnesota's defense. They did put up 21 goals overall, but yeah. Yeah. They, they well, got a... I also yeah. think, you know, Atlanta Atlanta beat Dallas by, what was it, seven last week? I would yeah. say Indy's a much better team than Dallas, so for whatever this that's is worth, true. it might be worth this three points. True. But the last time these two teams played in 2019... Indoors win by. They played indoors. Yeah, and the hustle won by a pretty significant margin. Five or something. Yeah, it wasn't particularly close. It was a kind of a fun game, though. It's always oh, yeah. fun seeing like a non-central division team playing indoors in Indy specifically, because so they know, just like just like imagine what New York could do in that environment. New York would score forty. Ryan Osgar would have fifteen yeah. assists. Easy. <laughs> Can you imagine Rosgar's be so or, high score? Osgar's blady throws indoors, the touch he has, oh, yeah. and no wind every, every possession. It would just be video I mean, game it's, numbers. It's, it's it's like what he's doing now anyway, really, with Lithio and Babbitt downfield. But yeah, I, he would just have more possessions, run up the score significantly more. So then let's take this opportunity and kind of this lull at the end of the regular season to transition a little bit more into, I think, kind of a retrospective talk, but also with a lens for the future and getting into five categories, I think, that we wanted to talk about at a team level, starting with most surprising, most disappointing, best throwers, most likely to defeat New York because New York has been such the odds-on favorite to win the title this season, going undefeated during the regular season, and just with, what, a, a eight-goal-a-game margin, I believe, for the year. Um, and then finally, which D-line counter attack would we trust the most? 
and of course, keeping in mind that Indy is set to shatter the all-time record for D-line efficiency and looks to be on the verge of possibly making the playoffs should Chicago defeat Madison tomorrow night. But there's plenty of arguments to be made for other teams around the league and why you might assemble their <laughs> D-line counterattack. So we kind of wanted to talk about what version and what unit might be best suited for a deep playoff push. But let's start with most surprising. And why don't you talk about which team you thought kind of overtook your expectations this season? Yeah, there are there are a few on my list. I'll I'll pick one. You know, you you talked about Austin earlier. Absolutely was surprising considering the schedule that they had to face this year. And but part of that surprising thing was like I guess how how much distance there really was between Austin and Dallas. Uh, you know, Austin swept that meeting in all five games but I think I'm gonna take Philly as my more surprising team and you look at their record and they're five and six but I think Philly like it was like a consistent surprising throughout the season I was surprised initially when they started off against Boston and basically had this like lights out offensive performance that was just barely overshadowed by Boston's and they lost by a goal I was surprised by the fact that they lost their first three games, you know, by a a collective four goals, like not only that margin, but then just bouncing back from that early season deficit and their win loss record. They they've continued to impress me. And it was really like the games against D.C. where, you know, I, I think going into that first game, I was expecting them to really on paper. They had no right like to be exchanging and and trading blows with DC throughout that game and and like matching their O-line efficiency, matching their D-line efficiency. And throughout those two weeks, I was just more and more considering Philly as like a legitimate playoff contender. Whereas before, you know, they had some games against Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, whatever, Uh, you know, it was a little less surprising, but it's really been their, their performance against the top teams in this division that has surprised me most, even though they did lose all four games to DC and New York. I'm still still very proud of them and how they played this year. So they would be my pick. Do you think that they can follow through on the ultimate surprise and beat DC in the playoffs? In I the think they have it in, in them. Yeah? Yeah, I think they have it in them. I mean, we've, we've said many times, it's hard to beat the same team like three times in a row all by, what, a one-goal margin? Like... They've they've proven at this point that they are very evenly matched with DC, and especially the way DC ended their sorry not ended their regular season because they do have another game against Ottawa this week. But last week against Boston was not pretty. I think there's there's still potential for Philly to beat DC, even though again on paper it still feels like DC has a lot more talent. I've just been impressed with like the the ability Philly has to stay in these games and then really push their competition for the full four quarters. I think one of the more underrated parts about that matchup too is that it's a coaching lineage matchup. Uh, Philly's new head coach this season, Howard Chu, actually came out of Daryl Stanley's system, was an assistant and a disciple of him. And I think that's part of why Philly can match up so well with D.C., you know, Philly understands the inner workings of Stanley's system. And I think you see that in a lot of their matchups. Philly just has a way 
I think, of being disciplined this year down to every individual matchup, particularly on defense. Obviously, their offensive playmaking with Pollard and Ryan and Mott has been fantastic this year. But I think the difference for Philly has been their ability to give a lot of teams pressure in almost every one-on-one situation, including New York. You know, I know New York got the, what, five-goal win this past week, but Philly made them play straight up throughout most of the game. Ben Yacht had to be switched back onto offense to start the second half, and obviously New York immediately connected on a deep goal to him and kind of created separation in the second half and cruised to an easy win on the road, but... Philly kind of forced the Empire's best look. And I I agree with you. I think that that's been really impressive for Philly. And I think it bodes really well going into their first round matchup. Because again, Chu's going to understand what to do best against the Breeze. I just, I I still really like the Breeze this year. I, I do too. I do too. But they haven't surprised me the way Philly has. No, no. And I would say that DC still might be a little bit underneath of where I thought of them last year, but that might be an aesthetic evaluation. Like, I think that in my heart of hearts, and if I were to actually kind of dig through the data a bit, I I like DC overall more in 2022. I just was so impressed with them last year. And I think that was partly because they might have been my most surprising team in 2021. Um, but yeah, I, I think for 2022, my most surprising team has to be one of the expansion teams, and that is the Salt Lake Shred. I think going into this year, they were one of the franchises that I knew the least about given their roster lineup. You know, they had essentially five to six players who had ever played an AUDL game before, and other than that, it was a lot of local Utah talent. And I think, especially given the youth of those quote-unquote AUDL veterans that they had joining, we didn't know what to expect of them given their elevated roles. And we talked a lot about that in the preseason. You know, how would Jordan Kerr and Joe Merrill and Garrett Martin and Alec Benton and uh, Joel Clutton and Ben Green play when they, you know, ostensibly kind of came home or had their homecoming with this Salt Lake expansion team. And I think that given that the Shred are sitting at nine and two, have the number two seed in the West locked up and have only lost to Colorado twice in 2022, they've got to be like one of the more, I think, surprising elements of the last few years. You know, it's, they're so surprising in that me saying all that doesn't even come as a surprise at this point. You know, they got five wins in the first (laughs) month of the season and just look to be one of the more explosive teams on either side of the disc. And I think that's a huge credit to obviously the personnel and the players, obviously Merrill and Kerr and uh, the Jorgensen brothers have been a huge impact for this team. But I think it also extends to the coaching and the preparation that has gone into this team. Like they've hit the ground running and just sort of immediately establish this winning culture in an environment that, you know, the last time there was an AUDL team in Utah, they went winless and they got blown out every single game. And so with that kind of as a precedent, a one-year existence almost of infamy, I, I think that the shred coming out and and performing the way that they did is is super impressive. And, and I think also their ability to sort of like, 
have have I think one of the more difficult trajectories almost to manage as far as an expansion team where they had some of their most success right up front and since then it's been sort of grittier wins having to roll with the punches a little bit and I think that that's been really good for kind of what they need going into their first playoffs especially against San Diego team that's super experienced, one of the most veteran-heavy rosters in the entire league, and then a Colorado team that, while an expansion team, is headed by some of the most winning players that have ever played in this league. I think Salt Lake having to kind of take their lumps has been good for them in in the last, you know, four to six weeks. I love the parallel we're going to get to of... You know, Salt Lake and San Diego having that first game of the season and now meeting in round one of the playoffs because it, it does feel like both teams have transformed pretty significantly throughout the season. Uh, but to, the, to your point about them being surprising, I think it, it also just goes to show even with, even with rosters coming out for these expansion teams, you're never going to know how an expansion team is going to do, what kind of rosters they're going to field. Until the season gets going, I I just don't think I knew what to expect from Salt Lake. I I was excited about some of those second year AUDL vets, but yeah, just so much youth and like there's so much potential there, and they were very they quickly became a very fun team to root for. And I think on the flip side of that, my most disappointing team for 2022 is another expansion <laughs> team, and that's the Portland Nitro, who have. Since yeah. starting two and one, dropped what eight in a row? They're two and nine, two and eight. Yeah, they've dropped seven in a row. Uh, Not great. Their lineup has morphed a thousand times over this year. Uh, Leandro Marx has been obviously uh, a huge sh- shining star as far as offensive production, but other than that, I think it's been a lot of inconsistencies and just seeing sort of like a glimpse of what was possible in that week two matchup at home against yeah. Colorado that went to overtime. You think about if they were competitive this year and they kind of made it almost a four or five team tussle for the three playoff spots in the West, what kind of tension mm-hmm. that would introduce to the division, especially in this, you know, last weekend of the regular season where they have two road matchups that would have otherwise been hugely important for the playoffs especially the AUDL game of the week on Saturday night against Colorado which is now completely meaningless other than you know <laughs> the summit needing to be impressive right. for the point differential totals but that's kind of an abstract I think level of the game and it's just you know I I don't know I similar to Salt Lake I didn't know a bunch I didn't know what to expect from this Portland roster necessarily going into this year, but I knew at the top that they had stars and that beyond that, it seemed like given the general Portland community's level of talent, that they would be able to figure out depth, especially on defense. And that has just not been the case at all. And I don't know. It's they're They're a tough team to watch right now, despite obviously having one of the most exciting playmakers we've seen on offense in a few years right yeah i mean the star power is it's there when they have that full lineup but unfortunately it just has been mostly leandro marks representing that group throughout the season and yeah i think their defense would have still been a problem even if they were fielding the same consistent rosters week to week but it definitely would have made it more interesting as maybe like a four or five team 
playoff race in that division. I I think Boston is the only other team that has probably been as disappointing as Portland to me. And, you know, you look at their, their just game-by-game schedule, and they're a totally different team when they're playing at home. They do not travel with, like, even full rosters to Canada. They typically only bring 18 or 19 guys up there, can't even get 20 committed. And I think just from what we saw from them last year and how well they played New York and DC and Carolina, like the top of that Atlantic division was all challenged by Boston at various points last season. And just the fact that they, they need to rely on the presence of Tanner Johnson and Orion Cable and the rest of those O-line starters, but they just can't get that commitment level for more than a few games each year. It, it has been very frustrating and disappointing to watch them. I think a lot of us, maybe just me and you, had hopes that they would be that third playoff seed in the East this year. And I, I would have felt decently good about their ability to compete with New York and D.C., which they, they have proven this year. You know, they've played both those teams at home against New York. They lost by four, and that was without Tanner Johnson in the lineup. They did have Tanner Johnson back in the lineup, but no Orion Cable against D.C. They, of course, lost in overtime this past weekend. So, like, you can still see the potential so clearly, and I think that's probably the common theme with these disappointing teams. It's that the potential is there, the consistency and buy-in and commitment to this team is, is just not. And you compare it to other teams where, like, New York is fielding basically the same roster every week. Carolina has the depth where they don't even need to field the same roster every week. And yeah, it's just hard to really compare Boston to the other top teams in the league right now without seeing more consistency from this point forward. And I think we're almost speaking to the same effect, which is that if these teams were competitive almost in the ways that we kind of anticipate, it just makes the divisional parity so much more engaging and I think you really saw that last year with the Atlantic division where there were four very competitive teams and it just when you have three to four competitive teams in any division with the way that the week-to-week grind works it just makes these back half I think schedules so much more competitive and I think that like it the disappointing part is seeing the potential there and I think seeing what happened last year, especially in the waning weeks with how the Atlantic just became a, a firestorm of of different playoff scenarios and kind of late season drama. Uh, and, and there just like hasn't been that this year because there's kind of been a limit of three or fewer competitive teams in each division. Right, right. I also, I did miss, I misspoke earlier. Boston did play Carolina and New York extremely close last season. They did not play D.C. close at all. That was a this year thing. Now, last year was a, a mess when they went to D.C. and lost 32-20. to 20. So I just want to clear that up. But generally, you know, still the potential is there. And yeah, if they can just put together more consistent lineups, I think they could be a really good team in this division. Moving on from there, we're going to go to best throwers. So this is the team with the best lineup of throwers. I guess you could break that down with maybe the most depth of throwing talent or just the arms you like the most. For my pick, I'm kind of going with both. 
and this will quietly be a run where I might choose the same team three times in a row. I'm going with the uh, the Flyers. Uh, I just think with their top four of Gucho Hannes, Yannick, Eric Taylor, and Elijah Long, as far as touches this season, they are four of the most reliable throwers. And then in addition to that, when you start talking about just the general disc skills on this team, you have Terrence Mitchell, who has been almost mistake-free the past two seasons. Henry Fisher doesn't have um, a throwaway, or he has two throwaways now in the season. I think he just accrued those. I think he was almost at a perfect completion rating. Jacob Fairfax, while sometimes having turnovers when he's taking deep looks, I still think is a remarkably talented thrower. Noah Saul, Siraj Manaraju, Seth Weaver, Grayson Sanner, Andrew Lee, these are all really good throwers. And you even talk about the players who are missing time this season in Anders Jungst and Alan Laviolette. Those guys were developed. I mean, Jungst was developing into a pretty darn good thrower. And Laviolette last season was arguably a top three continuation thrower at times in the entire league. So there's just so much throwing talent all over the roster for Carolina. But I think it also just... At the top end, you don't really get four better throwers than Gucho Hennis, Yannick Long, and Eric Taylor as far as the full gamut of throws that they can provide you. I'm taking DC. I, you know, it's not, it, there's no wrong answer here. Obviously, that long list of names you just rattled off, I'm not saying they're not the best lineup of throwers out there but i don't know with dc it's almost like you look at who's not a thrower on this offensive line specifically i mean they've got of course rowan johnny mox Jacques nissen at the top and then tyler monroe warden v wodach boxley all those guys can throw the fact that jeremy knopf is like sort of their almost like 10th man on offense but is still completing over 99 percent of his throws this year speaks a lot to their depth zach norbaum has missed a chunk of games he's fantastic but like the guys that can't throw it's like joe richards isn't much of a thrower kevin healy isn't much of a thrower i really wouldn't point to anyone else that plays some offense for this team and say that they are not a good thrower and then on the defensive side of course blood good david shields aj merriman are kind of the the core firepower of that d-line counterattack, and it's it's just cool to watch this team i mean it's it's more specifically on the offensive side where it does feel like they are consistently feeling like basically six of seven guys on that line that can all drop back and handle at a moment's notice they have a very flowy system in that way okay, and oh go ahead i'm, I'm gonna ask you in a fantasy draft would you choose any DC player over Gucho Hannes, Yannick, or Eric Taylor if you're just drafting throwers? I think I would take Rowan. Over which one? I mean, uh, I think I would take Rowan over... Wait, who would you say? Yannick, Taylor, Gucho Hannes? Yeah. I mean, fantasy is just like stats-based, right? So... No, not <laughs> have to no, d- no, 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 no. Like, I- I'm sorry. I use fantasy as like... Uh, oh, oh, you mean, you mean drafting like drafting a team player. from scratch? Yeah, you could, okay. that's you a could different, have that's a different question. player pool from either team from scratch. You need a thrower. How, no, I... How many I Carolina throwers do you have to get past before you take a DC thrower, I guess, is what I'm asking. I... 
Yeah, I think I'd probably take an argument for DC's throwing depth, and I totally agree that stats bear that out, but you still got to get like 15 deep on the Flyers roster before you hit a thrower that's not someone who you could almost rely on to complete like 30 a game, 30 completions, I should say. Maybe, but I don't know. DC just feels like they have more handlers, more guys that that we've seen handle and are capable handlers. But I mean, to your question, I, I would say Eric Taylor and Saul Yannick are at the top of that list, and then I would go to, you know, maybe Rowan or really Rowan or Malks or Nissen. I'd probably take over Gucho Hannes. Ah, uh, that's such a tough decision because I think they it is tough. I mean, they're they're different. different of course, yeah, the, yeah. the play style is so different. It's hard to compare. You want like a good balance of different types of handlers, you, of course. I think you could put Gucho Hannes in more situations and have more success, though, than almost any of the other three. Even though I would say that the other three might have yeah. a deeper bag. Like, I think that they function. I want a so deep well. bag on my team. Give me a I deep bag. I don't think Gucho Hannes lacks it. I think he just never goes into it because doesn't he has use it. such fun yeah, just absolutely to. out executing everyone. You know, like he out resets everyone. He's he just finished with one of the, I would say, top three most impressive reset handler seasons ever. You know, like he had four throwaways versus five hundred completions. It, I mean, I'm, the answer the answer might be that you you take Gucho Hannes and then you try to get one of the DC guys over either Saul Yannick or Eric Taylor, but because like that that balance is extremely important. And I think that's why Carolina has had so much success and why you pick them as the best throwers because it's it's also that balance that they have throughout their lineup, right? Like they have those types of guys, but then they you know of course Fairfax and Fisher downfield, Terrence Mitchell to like. They're, it's obviously a well-distributed throwing approach. Mitchell really deserves more credit. He's gotten so much better thrower. as a thrower. I mean, it's it's been happening, though. Like, it's not necessarily something that's happened overnight. Like, you look back over the past no, it's two not, and a half seasons, yeah. and it's been coming. I think it's just he had such a definable player profile from the time he was 17, 18, that it it takes a while for you know sort of the the preconceived idea of he's only a downfield ta- like he is so important for his ability to be a thrower especially this season like you've seen games where they just rely on him as kind of being this calm upfield presence in the last game he was twenty five of twenty five three assists seven goals he had four hundred and fifty receiving yards but was kind of like a motion passer, particularly around the red zone. One of the most impressive performances for him in an otherwise spectacular career. And I just think that he continues to be someone who needs to be looked at more seriously as just one of the best decision makers in the league over the past, you know, again, two plus seasons. For sure. But I like I think I think the like range on his Karen, throws, or maybe maybe just the maybe it's the confidence Karen, with his hooks. I've Imagine noticed parents like, in DC's system. That would be fun. That'd be I very fun. He'd, he'd fit right in. Would, yeah, I think he would fit right into that system. Not that he doesn't fit in in Carolina's. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, any yeah, any DC Carolina offensive player probably fits in well to the other system. So we've got two more categories to go through. They're a little bit more, I would say involved as far as like a narrative aspect so 
first up we have what team would be most likely to defeat New York? Now, I know that's kind of obviously a leading question, but listener, we were having trouble ideating around questions that wouldn't just lead to the New York Empire as an answer, for example. <laughs> which is, which is what happened when we, we did right, like our, our mid-season superlatives, is New York just sweeping most of the categories. So we were trying to avoid that, which led us to the idea of, well, then it just essentially becomes the question of, do you take New York or the field? So what team we're trying to think of would be best equipped to take down New York. And I think that there are a couple right answers here. I don't think New York is maybe as impervious as we think of. I think that they've benefited from having a pretty cake schedule in the East. I think that they've had very favorable matchups in their important games against DC and Philadelphia and have otherwise had opportunities to just sort of lab with their lineups and build into the most efficient version of themselves. Like it felt, it's felt like this has been about as perfect of a season as you could have had for this empire team and the amount of pieces and different roles that they'd been experimenting with. Right. Like this has gone better than you could have written into fiction. So I, I think, (laughs) I, I think with that, they're not necessarily in reality as impervious as the stats and otherwise might indicate. I think that, you know, there is the real aspect of they're going to have rust by the time that they host the East division championship game on was it August 20th. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think that they haven't had a whole bunch of battle tested games. I I'm interested to see if DC can keep it close in that playoff game and what that means for them. Ostensibly DC, it might be Philly. Um, but what it right. means for New York to play in a close game in a game that matters, if that has any kind of effect on them or if they are just front runners. So with all that in mind, why don't you start off with the team you feel most likely could maybe unseat the Empire from their perspective throne? It's Carolina for me. Still Carolina. They did it last year. I, I think they're the only like top team in the league right now that I haven't really had any concerns about the entire season like even even with like some slight roster jumbling that they go through week to week they're just so deep and and so consistent as like an entire system whether that's their o-line efficiency or their ability their d-line has to just clamp down late in games and really close things out i just i haven't seen that level of just like how do you beat this team from anyone else in the league? And I know, I know Austin was able to beat Carolina, but it took Austin's best game in franchise history to do it. And under 10 turnovers in a game. And there's also that whole element. It's like Carolina is just not, they don't turn the disc over much yet. They still maintain this deep attack and this aggressiveness for their offense, where I just don't think any team has the balance that they do right now. I mean, aside from them in New York, I would say, but even New York, I've like, I've been a little skeptical of their D line in recent weeks. And by recent weeks, I really just mean when they played Philly last year, last year and last year and earlier in the season, I still, I I think I've seen it look shaky at times where it's like, Oh, that is a potential weakness. If they are just having these guys that are slightly more turnover prone, leading the counterattack, as opposed to Carolina's, you know, much more efficient, like patient, you know, poised approach. 
Um, so, you know, not to say that Carolina can take down New York, but I will say they are the most likely to in my mind. I'll agree with you, but I, I gotta say the the mistrust in New York's D line, I feel like it's, we've kind it's of invented the, the, it's the slightest it's the slightest it, hint of I, mistrust. I understand given their inefficiencies, particularly in their two games against Philly, but I mean, you also look at it when they have like Randolph available and they have Miser available, and then it becomes sure, sure. Miser and Yacht and Antoine and Katz and Randolph coming at you on the defensive yeah, counterattack. And just the way that no the Drosts are playing this year, they're playing great. They're playing as good as they ever have in year, what, nine in their careers. Uh, All time block leaders as twins. That's. You know, we almost don't talk about that enough. That's crazy. <laughs> no, we, you know, we probably that's, don't. That's a Disney movie. That's, like, why has pretty it, cool. Where is... I, is I it, should be more excited about it. Is it Eisner that runs Disney still? No, it's somebody else. Some other idiot. I, but, like, I don't know. I shouldn't Who say cares? that. Maybe ESPN is listening. <laughs> uh, they're not. Uh, no, but, like, no. you know, the, the fact that two twins are the all-time leaders in blocks, number one and two, for a league that at some points gets confused with like Quidditch and stuff is, is pretty like, like I could see that on like a blockbuster shelf in the nineties. What would you, what would you call the Dross twins movie? Like it takes, it takes two is already taken. Uh, Double trouble. Put me on the spot. Brothers empire. Brothers empire. The the tale of two brothers. Something like that. Maybe you're getting somewhere, or or you you do some pun with with dross. I guess it's not it's not the most like pun, the, the most punny name you could come up with. Something with frost, maybe. Uh, we're no, getting that's... into fantasy football season where it's all about making puns from player names. So I'm yeah, I'm not there yet, but we, we can't can say those it. on this podcast. So we've been getting away pretty good without having to put any kind of parental warning, and I feel like if if I have to start talking about my creative process with fantasy football names, we're gonna. Oh, I. Real you, I guess you you go the explicit route. I never I never go too explicit with it. Oh, I go with like challenging ESPN's rules and guidelines for what you can have publicly <laughs> available. Kind of why? Because yes. it's the NFL, man. It's like it's it's one degree above murder ball right now. So. But we're we're way off in left field right now. Uh, you, you took us here. Where I know, I know, I know. I'll, I'll I'll wind it back. I'll wind it back, and I'll I'll just concur with you on Carolina probably being the most equipped. Although I, I'll say I think DC will still present a really significant challenge Ugh, should they get past Philly. They didn't look great. You just chose Boston. them for best throwers. But they, you, yeah, you love I, to take single game sample sizes and be like, "This is the worst thing that's ever happened." Or you, like, this you team weren't worried about them at all watching I'm that not Boston too game. Worried, they felt very loose in that Boston game. I don't, I didn't think it represented them well, and they still came away with the W. It that was a that was a very punch drunk game overall. It was weird. Like, just there was weird. There was weird wind. Weird I, I also feel like while DC had better throwers, they would just make bad decisions at times. It, yeah, it was it was odd. I'm, I'm willing to consider that an outlier for this season, but it's just not, 
it's not great when like that's your second to last game leading up to the playoffs you know i agree it wasn't great for the momentum especially given how well they had been playing up until that point recently i mean but they right. still have what right. a six game win streak I, I still really like where DC is at, especially given that their defense has started to catch up. You know, there were all those weird metrics that were not great for their defense throughout the first month of the season. You know, I know some of it was offset by that one game up in Toronto, but they were still alarmingly high in like opponent offensive efficiency and some pretty telling stats. And they've definitely corrected since then. And their defense feels like one mm-hmm. of the most disruptive units in the league. And I think that'll kind of matriculate into our final question, which is which D-line counterattack would you choose for the playoffs? Now, I think the big thing to consider with this question is that Indy, potential playoff team, is currently converting 69% of their D-line possessions 2022 which would shatter the existing record of 59% set in 2021 by Madison. Now, I should also mention that this season, I believe it's, is it DC? That is also converting at a historical rate on defense. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, so Madison's last year was actually, it was 56.9%. 56, was, sorry. Was Madison I was ceiling. flipping some numbers. And DC yeah. is at 59% yeah, this year, and New York is also mm-hmm. at 57 So. The top three D-line efficiencies ever would be set this season between Indy, DC, and the Empire. But Indy is converting at a 10% higher clip than even DC's second all-time, presumably, high rate this season. Like, Indy is in such a different stratosphere for defensive line efficiency. And yet, neither of us are going to choose them for the defensive line that we would... (laughs) pick for the why is that though what what explain to me why why aren't we choosing that i mean there's 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 a mechanics effect in here i think uh i think think generally the d line or i should say o-line defenses in the midwest or i should say central division this year have been disappointing i don't even think minnesota's has been particularly impressive as far as its ability to prevent counterattacks and break scores at times like that's how madison beat them uh, a few weeks ago was their d-line's ability to be efficient and punching home scores so i i think it's a little bit in a an effect of the division that they play in i think that I, i'm really trying to avoid saying that they're lucky because i don't think that that's the case i don't <laughs> think that you go i mean honestly the the, the indoor season. the indoor plus detroit you know, effect that that has on the D-line conversion rate, I think is somewhat significant. But they're still, you know, what is it? Top seven in break scores per game. It's not as if they're converting, you know, for a game and it's at 69%. They're still in raw numbers converting some of the most breaks in the league this season well and it was a few weeks ago i did i checked like you know their splits between outdoor games and indoor games and it does drop them down when you just look at their outdoor games but they're still converting i think at least 57 percent outdoors which again would be a record than any other team has finished with ever so yeah i there is something to this indie d line but i i agree it's maybe just not as not as 
flashy or or talent heavy as some of the other ones we've I seen. think it's less balanced. They so rely on Xavier Payne to do everything for them in their counterattack. And while I think that everyone else around him does a very good job of playing their roles, they have a very good job of when to attack a field and when to reset to pain. But without yeah. him in the mix, and especially without Matsuka too to balance it, they just I don't know how they move the disc upfield and Nick Hutton will be absent this week. Right. Like, I, he's been, I mean, I looked They're next, <laughs> the guy who has the next most completions, the, the next most completions of those primary D line guys is Jake fella. Who's, who's not a handler. So like, I don't know who's no. going to run the charge for them. I, yeah, I'm a little bit worried about their hopes against Atlanta this week, but might not matter anyway, if Madison loses. Yep. Indy might get to back in anyways. And I think the team that, you know, we would pick, I, I don't know. I haven't actually heard who you would pick in this scenario. We were supposed <laughs> to talk about it. I go, I go back and forth. I think I'm, I think I'm willing to take a, a full strength, willing to take, willing to say, if you twist my arm, I'll take a full strength New York empire. Oh, okay. How generous. Because it, just because it, I think it, of all the D lines in the league right now, it most closely resembles, uh, what could be an incredible O-line with, with the turnover issues they sometimes run into. They still have overall been what is their third most efficient D-line this year. Yeah. yeah, After DC. And so still converting 50% of their 57% of their uh, defensive possessions. I, I do think some amount of their struggles against Philly Partially is the Philly O line defense. I think really just good. James James Pollard is a force anytime he's out on the field, and that's another reason why we've loved his shift to O line is just having that ability to get the disc back. But yeah, they they didn't have John Randolph, they didn't have Jabron Miser, and I, I think when they're truly at full strength, there there's just a pace and like an aggressiveness that this defense has that it's it's hard to pick anything but them when I really think about it. They have the two-time reigning MVP on their counterattack in Ben Yacht. Like He's <laughs> decent. Yeah, he's he's, he's okay. Good. He's, you know, what, top five in he'll goals. Score, he'll score season. a couple goals for you. Yeah, yeah. he's get, top five in goals for the season while playing half of his time on defense. No biggie. Yeah, he did um, exceed, by the way. He, he has officially played more D points than O points this season. I really like that transition. I I oh, continue to think that cleaning up a little bit of just the overall kind of top-heavy stardom on the offensive unit has done a lot to eliminate some of the stickiness that you saw at times last season with New York. You know, like, they were not a perfect unit whatsoever. And I think that one of the reasons why, even as talented as it was, was the offense's inability to get away from over-relying on Yacht and Williams and Osgar to kind of do everything. And I think this year, somehow with Yacht spelling on the D-line and Babbitt shifting over to O, Weinberg obviously joining the fold and an improved char talk, but it, it just feels like everything's simplified a little bit with just kind of having Osgar as sort of the obvious playmaker on offense it's no longer osgar and yacht and again that feels so odd to say out loud like you would just figure yeah of course you want to play them all together and just make a defense have to question their existence but right again if it feels like that addition by subtraction rule again where it it just 
allows you to, I think, see things more clearly. You don't have that slight bit of hesitation of, you know, kind of that hypothetical of who would take the last throw or score the last goal. Feels like this year it's it's very obviously the Ryan Osgar show in the Empire offense. I will say, I, I think the fact that this switch came directly with Jeff Babbitt, it, like if you just look at their turnover numbers, Yad is completing 89.6% of his throws. He's always been hovering around that 90% mark. Babbitt is significantly higher. He's completing 97% of his throws this year. He had 100% completion percentage last year. And when you take a guy that's like arguably just as dominant in the air, downfield, obviously he's not as tall, but plays just as tall as Ben Yacht, but you take away all of those turnovers, I, I just feel like that was almost a, a no-brainer to make this offense just more efficient and, and not allow the opposing offense to really claw their way back into games when it's just... They they are turning the disc over at a historically low rate, and I just I, I, obviously Osgar deserves a ton of credit for it, but it's it's that balance that they've struck with Babbitt as that downfield receiver and Lithio, while he will take some shots, isn't as aggressive as Yacht when he gets the disc. So I I agree, love that coaching decision. That was probably like the coaching decision of the year if I had to pick like one specific line maneuver that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it feels reminiscent of Eric Taylor being freed up and getting able to spell in defense yep. and offense last year for the Flyers. Obviously, he had a little bit more, I think, of a balanced role. I think New York is kind of making Yacht into a defensive specialist, it feels like, even though he did spell at times on offense this last week against Philly, it feels like his importance to being both a defensive matchup shutdown defender and also leading the counterattack is is where his biggest usefulness is this season for New York. But despite all that, I'm going to choose Carolina for my defensive counterattack unit for the playoffs. I just, I like their depth of throwers on defense, and I like their style in that they choke you out at the point of attack. And so I think they get a lot of short field opportunities. And I just think that that, is a great scenario for playoffs and stunting teams, not only like practically in the fact that you're getting a short field to convert a break, but also I think it's an emotional component too. And I think you saw that in the games against Atlanta this year where they were relatively close games for two to three quarters, but the Flyers' ability to sort of get handler reset backfield turnovers and then convert a couple of quick scores off of those really suck the air out of their opponent and I just feel like that's such an advantage in the playoffs where all these games are going to have that this is an emotionally charged environment feel to them you know I think that it's one of the things where I worry about the West teams and how they will fare in the championship weekend environment against Sort of some other teams I think have seen more discipline in how defensive counterattacks work. And I think that the the most disciplined unit, e- even though Indy, again, is historically great, I think it, in my mind it, or in my heart, the, the most competitive defensive counterattack this year is the Flyers and just how how they run the show like and i think that if you watch enough tape that kind of bears itself out like I, again like all 
all the credit in the world to Indy and DC and New York too. Like they're again playing at historically great rates in their uh, defensive efficiencies. But I don't know, just something about watching the Flyers initiate like a weave on defense is is so pleasing to me. Like it just it's such a, a reassuring tactic when they can just wash and repeat and sort of wear out an offense off of the turn you know and just kind of make them go through a few just hey you gotta stick close to your handler guy uh after they already committed an error that's again it's such like a mental edge well you i feel like you kind of changed the question because it sounded like you were also talking about their their defensive ability and they feel like a team that that pairs that that balance so well between how they play defense and what their counterattack, what the offense looks like after turnovers, because it is all about just tiring out those offenses and really grinding them down both by pressuring every single reset, every single throw, and then making them play defense for extended periods of time. But I don't know, when you think of just the counterattack specifically, just their D-line offense, you still take it over D.C., over New York? Yeah, I think I do. I think I still like their ability to just run out into space, especially with D-Rich getting more healthy. He provides a big receiving option, kind of like a tight end. You saw that, I think, against the Cannons a couple weeks ago where he caught a couple of breakaway goals. He's really viable for them as like a bigger receiver. And then again, like they, they can run five throwers who would otherwise be like a reliable pivot handler on offense for a lot of teams in this league and just sort of grind you out you know again like they don't have to do anything sexy in the way that new york likes to huck it off of a turn they like to get antoine and yacht and randolph and their big playmakers in space flyers don't have to do that they can like there's been a couple times this year where they like to play in space off of a turn. They did that against Atlanta in their last matchup. They were engaging the deep ball off of turns. But I think a lot of times, more often than not, you just see them simply take the open throw and understand that they have better endurance and they have better throwers to just work out these breaks. Like their their weave sets where they run Madaraju, Lee, Weaver, Noah Saul, Elijah Long, whoever kind of in that yeah, handler it's a, space. It's a, lot of, it, it's a lot of guys. It's dizzying. And the, you can just see like the the O-line defense almost kind of give up in a way. Like that's not what you want to do. You don't want to commit a throwaway and then have to go play really tight handler defense off of the turn. Like that is that is almost the lowest order of things an ultimate player wants to do. And Flyers just make you have to engage in that if you make an error it's also like i feel like there's an added element of it because of how efficient carolina's offense is and the fact that the opposing o-line just has to be you know just like on top of everything like they're already facing so much pressure from the carolina offense just needing to respond every time and i think that's why we've seen so much defensive success from them too it's just Again, that that concept of wearing down the opposing O-line throughout a game. They just do it in a variety of ways. Yeah. And again, I think that that's why I like them as both the most... Uh, 
as both the most talented throwing team and the team that I'd most favor in a D-line counterattacking situation, it, it just comes back to that like balance and depth as throwers. It just feels like they have that solution available. I think I think for sure on on D line I would take them as like the most talented throwing D line, but I still like DC on offense. You can't go wrong with DC, but that will do it for this week 14 again final regular season weekend episode of Swing Pass. Thank you again so much for tuning in. I know we kind of got into a little bit more of a rambly space this episode after a few shorter episodes, but. Lots to talk about as far as the cumulative sort of effect of this regular season. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you tune in this weekend again to the 12-game slate, 11 games of which will be available on watch.audl.tv. Tuning in again for the final weekend of this regular season and then in preparation for the 2022 AUDL playoffs, which will begin in two weeks. We will be tuning in this weekend alongside you to watch all of the concluding action to this regular season. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We will talk to you soon. We'll be back at you on Tuesday. See you then.